Um, the epistle to James, chapter 4, verses 13 through chapter 5, verse 6. Now I'm going to be reading in the ESV, uh, and we invite you to follow along. Uh, you can look it up in a pew Bible, or if you brought your own Bible or Bible app. Um, again, that's James chapter 4, verses 13 through chapter 5, verse 6. May the Lord bless the reading of God's word for us today. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, today's message is called, What is your life? That's the question that I want to pose to you. What is life? Do you ever wonder that? That's one of the most common questions that we ask ourselves. What is the meaning of life? What, 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 what does this all mean? What is this all leading to? Is it just about eating and surviving and just reproducing and just doing it all again You know, in, in the course of humanity? Is life just a blip on the radar? Is that all it is or does it mean more? And, and a lot of people have pointed to the, the, the fact that we even think that, that we even wonder that, that is something that gnaws at us, that maybe that is an indication that there is something more, that we have been built for something more. We know in the Judeo-Christian story that we do believe that we were made for a purpose, that we were made by a loving creator, and that means something, Right? Um, but I, I think that this passage actually does answer that question. What is life? But brothers and sisters, I want to warn you. I mean, you know this already. I'm not going to tell you anything you don't know. But I just want you to know, you're not going to like the answer. <laughs> In some ways, you're not going to like the answer unless it is redeemed by Christ. Because the answer in and of itself is pretty depressing. A lot of us don't want to hear it. A lot of us are in denial of this. A lot of us spend a lot of money and time running from the fact of what our life really is. So let's take a look at James. Let's just dive right into the letter. And it will tell us very soon in this passage, in this first page of this, the, the verses that we read, what is life? Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? That's the question, right? 
And James is going to tell us, for you are a mist. Brothers and sisters, this is your life. I did this last year when we were talking about the chasing after the wind. We were doing Ecclesiastes. You know, I kept spraying people and going, meaningless, meaningless. A lot of the youth group were not happy with me. Um, I thought it was hilarious, but they, they didn't think it was that profound. But this is our life, right? This is what it says. You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Some of us may be thinking, Pastor Steve, what you just showed us, the mist, yes, that just goes away, right? It's gone. It's gone. No more mist. It's still there. This is a pretty big mist. Now it's gone, right? Not very long, right? It didn't last, but not very long. It's impermanent. That is your life. Now, some of us are thinking, but Pastor Steve, man, life seems really long. It does when you're younger, especially. Oh my gosh, I used to remember like, like sitting still for an hour. That just felt like forever. And then anytime like someone t- told me to wait, like you can't have this dessert today, but you can have it tomorrow. I'm like tomorrow? Tomorrow, that's forever. It's only 24 hours, but it felt like forever. And then, you know, maybe something a week out. Oh, we're going to go to such and such place in a week. A week? You know, I remember thinking uh, there was this thing that I was serving at this other church a few years back, and we were, th- th- this church was mostly older folks. So a lot of them were like, you know, they could have been like my grandparents. And we were planning this like carnival for the neighborhood, and some of them were like, ah, I don't know if this is going to happen. And someone said to me, well, Pastor Steve, if we can't do it this year, we'll just do it next year. I was like, next year? Next year? One whole year? And, and, and one of the things that I realized was for them, they were like, oh yeah, a year. What, what's a year? You know, and I realized this thing. As I get older, and maybe you've realized this too, time seems to go faster and faster and faster, right? Some of you who are younger, you'll, you'll notice this. You know, and time isn't actually passing faster, but your perception of it, as you have more of it, and then you realize that life really isn't as long as you think. It really isn't. And when you think about the whole scope of the, the, the age of this earth, right? What is our life? It's this. And from the Judeo-Christian perspective, God sees eternity, right? Forever, eons, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years. What is your life? You know, some of us will live longer than others. Maybe some of you, uh, you just have really good genetics. You know, you'll eat really well and exercise every day or just, you know, win the genetic lottery and you'll live to 100. Even that, God says, is a vapor. Just, that's it. That's your life. That's all it is. Right? And so, friends, if we know that then, the way we think about our life, the way we plan our life is pretty silly. Right? And that's the point that James is making. He says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. And brothers and sisters, if you're just reading this and, and you're just reading it plain, you're thinking, what's wrong with that? Don't we all do that? Don't we all make plans? Is it wrong to make plans? And the point that James is trying to make is a little bit deeper than that. But there is something about our plans, something about the very plans we make and how we make them 
that maybe points to the fact that we don't really understand what this life is and what it's about, right? Because he says, you make these plans like they're so certain. Today or tomorrow, I'm going to go do this. And this is exactly what my plan is going to be. You know, some of us, we have five-year plans, 10-year plans. And to us, that is our gospel. We're like, "Mm, I know exactly what I'm going to be doing in 10 years. And I think what James is saying is God would be saying to us, really? Do you really know? You really think you got a 10-year plan? Isn't there that saying, you know, if you want to make God laugh, make a plan, <laughs> make a 10-year plan? You know, for, for those of us who maybe are more veteran in life, who've lived a few years, you probably know. Plans never go, go, go according to plan. They always kind of go off the rails, don't they? And there is this kind of arrogance, this obstinacy in our hearts where we're like, no, 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 mm-mm, not my plans. Pastor Steve, maybe your plans went off the rails, but my plans, they're certain. And James, James is saying, no, they're not. No, they're not. No plans are certain because life itself is uncertain. You ever you know, hear about something that happens to someone for good or bad? And you thought to yourself, who would have predicted that? Who would have predicted cancer? Who would have predicted an accident. Who would have predicted the lottery? Whatever it is, right? You know, some detour in life and you just had no idea. You had no idea, right? And friends, this idea that our life is a vapor, it's something that we are very, very uncomfortable with. We don't like this. So we try to do all kinds of things to plan against it, right? Brothers and sisters, one of the things that that we learn, that I've learned, uh, that's kind of shocking to me, is that uh, doctors say that your health and your prospects for health are about 30% diet and exercise. You're like, wait, 30%? Yeah, 30%. What's the 70%? The 70%, friends... Is genetics, right? It's already determined. We hate to hear this. Nobody likes to hear this. Do you know uh, the, the show The Biggest Loser? Um, it came out a few years ago. And they had these super fit trainers. They're these young, good-looking trainers who, like, like, they eat super well, right? Nothing but, like, steamed, tasteless, boneless chicken, right? Chicken breast. You know, and they exercise all the time. They are super, super fit. And they would train these overweight people, these obese people in America that we judge all over the place. And we're like, oh, man, you know, you, you lazy people, you know, you, you, you've squandered your life and you've done all these things. You made bad choices, right? And so it turns out one of these trainers, one of the first trainers on the show, Bob, a few years ago, really young guy, really fit guy, had a massive heart attack and almost died. He didn't die, but he almost died. People hear that and they're like, what? That guy had a heart attack? There's some people on the show that were eating cheeseburgers every day, right? They were 500 pounds and they didn't have a heart attack. Now, don't get me wrong, brothers and sisters. If you eat cheeseburgers every day and if you are overweight, your chances go up. Yes, there's about 30% in your control. But 70% is not. They're perfectly healthy people who have done everything right, and one day they'll just have a massive heart attack. 
right? And, and doctors say about one in five of heart attacks, the first one, are fatal. We don't like to hear that. We don't like to hear that our life is not in our hands. But that is the reality, right? And so, friends, here we see these kinds of plans that it doesn't seem bad, but James ends up calling it evil. And you're like, Pastor Steve, come on. We all make plans. But brothers and sisters, let us not let ourselves off the hook. Let's understand why does he call this evil, right? He says, instead, instead of making these definite plans, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that, right? That's, that's more humble, right? To say, okay, I don't know for sure what's going to happen. So I'm going to leave this in God's hands. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. You boast in your pride. All such boasting is evil. Brothers and sisters, you ever boast this way? Do you ever make a plan and like, yeah, 10 years, I'm going to do this. Aren't I awesome? Brothers and sisters, I, maybe some of us do that, okay? You know, it, maybe some of us do boast about our plans, but I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think he's talking about something more fundamental to what, uh, what is at the heart of what we are trying to avoid, the reality of the impermanence of our lives, the reality of our mortality. And there is a subtle but very real arrogance and pride to that. Um, so, brothers and sisters, I don't think it's like this. Um, this is what's called the blasphemous boast. This is a, a trope that appears in TVs and movies. You guys know what a trope is? It's like a very common thing that happens. Like, like they just use it again and again and again and appears in lots of different stories. This is one of them, the blasphemous boast. You know, maybe you get a, a superhero or you, you get a villain who is so arrogant and proud that they say something like, God answers to me, or I'm even bigger than God, and then inevitably something will happen, right? In the next moment, or in the, the, the denouement of the movie, as things unfold, right? The, the, the person who made that boast gets struck by lightning, right? Something very ironic happens to them, and you're like, oh, God answers to you, huh? No, you answer to God, right? And it's this kind of, ah, oh, this moment where you're like, man, you shouldn't boast, right? You shouldn't say stuff like this. Is this what we're talking about? The blasphemous boast. Brothers and sisters, believe it or not, I think this actually has way more in common with the way we plan than we think. The reason why it is a boast, the reason why God calls it evil, is because we literally are trying to supplant God. We are literally trying to supplant God in many of our plans. What are our plans about? Our plans are about trying to secure ourselves. Let's go back to our friend who is planning that trip. And they're going to go and do business for a year or two in a city. And they got this plan. I'm going to make a certain amount of money. Why? What is that money about? Right? What, what are all, a lot of our lives about? And it goes on to sort of uh, talk about this a little bit more. And you'll see this. It says, come now, you rich, weep. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. 
Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. This is a pretty strong condemnation against uh, uh, people who do all kinds of uh, unethical things to get money, right? But brothers and sisters, we live in a system where this is just standard. And there's a reason for this. It's because it's idolatry. It's because we are trying to put ourselves in a position above God. And it is our ultimate reality. It is the thing that is most important to us. Why will people lie, cheat, and steal? And do all kinds of things that wrong people? Brothers and sisters, maybe this sounds so distant from your reality. You're like, Pastor Steve, we were just talking about plants a second ago. Now you're talking about cheating people and stealing and doing all kinds of unethical things? Yeah. It's on the same continuum. Brothers and sisters, do you guys know where tipping comes from? Now, in a lot of countries, there's no tipping culture. There is in North America, right? And there's a specific reason for that. If you go to Korea, there's no tipping culture. I remember I went to Korea, and I used to go to this food stand every day, and I really liked the service that this ajama would give me, uh, this older woman would give me, and so I tried to tip her. I tried to give her money. And she looked at me, and she's like, what is this? What is this? I was like, it's for you. And she was mad. right? I was insulting her by trying to give her that money. We think tipping is just an automatic thing. It's just a part of culture, natural culture. It is not. It is a part of American culture. Do you know where tipping comes from? It comes from slavery. Now imagine that you are a slave owner in the South, and you got all kinds of free labor. right? All kinds of free labor. And all of a sudden, overnight, Abraham Lincoln says, no, all the slaves are free. Now what happens? You got, now you had a completely unpaid workforce. Now you got to pay them. Now you got to pay them. But they're like, well, I don't want to pay them. That's going to cost a lot of money. I'm going to make a lot less money if I start paying all these slaves. Right? Now, if you're working in the fields, there's really no way to get around this other than just not paying them hardly anything. That's usually what happens. Right? In a lot of cases, the people working fields are the poorest because they're getting paid next to nothing. Now, around that time, America was very fastly industrializing, and they built the railroads. And they had these railroads that would crisscross the country. And so you would have people working in those railroads, and there would be like service cars where people would get food and drinks. Right? Who would be working in there? Former slaves. All these rich people were used to not paying them anything. So they came up with an ingenious idea that caught on, and it continues to this day. Well, I don't want to pay them, so let's have the customers pay them, right? You guys see this? Right? So we'll just leave a jar out or a cup, and you can pay them because we're not going to. Still to this day, in many, many states, you can pay your workers next to nothing because of tips, Right? Yes, there are some states that require that if it goes below a certain wage, you have to pay um, you know, up to minimum wage, but some states don't even have a guarantee of that. Right? Brothers and sisters, 
Why? Why didn't at some point we looked at things and said, well, slavery is wrong. It's evil. Now we must pay everyone a living wage. But that would mean for some people to sacrifice immense amounts of money. And this is the thing, brothers and sisters. I don't know for sure, but I know that in many of those cases, those people had money to spare. Some of those people would die with money that they never spent. Maybe it goes to some, uh, you know, their relatives, their kids, to their kids' kids, but they would never spend all that money. And yet, thousands, millions of people would not be able to make a living wage. For what? That's America. That's the world we live in. And we look at that, we don't even blink. And we're like, well, yeah, Pastor Steve, you're just talking about capitalism. But look at what James is saying. Look at what the gospel is saying. Look at the condemnation laid up against this kind of thinking. And if you think this is an isolated story, brothers and sisters, let's look at Luke chapter 12. This is the story that we call the rich fool. Um, I think you're going to have to do this for me. Um, Luke chapter 12. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And so what you see in this story is there's people who are fighting over money. And they're like, hey, this is what's rightfully mine. Two brothers who are being ripped apart because of money. And then Jesus tells a story which seems completely different than the, the, the situation that's being dealt with. Two brothers fighting over an inheritance. You're like, hey, you know what? One is just being selfish and not fair. But Jesus tells this story that just sounds like how all of us live today. It just sounds like capitalism. He said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. What did we say life was? Life is a mist and a vapor. Your life is not meant to be about just accumulating an abundance of possessions, more than you could possibly need. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is a showdown between the rich man and God. Who is in control of your life? The rich man believed that he was in control of his life. Ah, I hit the lottery. I have so much money. I earned this. Now I will have security forever. And God said, no, you won't. Because just like that, your health can be gone. Just like that, your life can be gone. Who has the control? That's what that sort of, that boasting is about. That's what James is getting at. When we make those plans, when we think to ourselves, I'm going to be a millionaire before the age of 35. What are we really planning for? We are planning to be secure and in control. We are planning to be our own gods in a way, right? And for some people, it sounds funny to think that some people who have more money than they can ever spend in one lifetime, 
would not be willing to let go of it, to feed slaves, to give people a living wage. They wouldn't be willing to get rid of it. But that's how seductive, that's how powerful money and wealth is for us. It's a God. If you don't think it's a God, just look at the history of our country and look how many lives have been ruined because of it, because of this illusion. I can be invincible and immortal and I can be in control of my life. What if you could be freed from that? What if you were not really having to live that way? Uh, And just to finish the passage, uh, it it says in verses 5 and 6, Sorry, my clicker's still not working. Uh, You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, some scholars, when they look at this, they look at that word for righteous person, righteous one. Who do you think they mean? It doesn't say you have condemned and murdered righteous people, it says you have condemned and murdered the righteous one in the context of who James was talking to. Brothers and sisters, I think the scholars are right in this. They think he's talking about Jesus. Ooh, is that a little uncomfortable? Right? These people who are living for luxury and self-indulgence who are living to be their own gods, you have condemned and murdered Jesus. Woo! I told you. I told you. It's uncomfortable. Mm, It's uncomfortable. Now, did those people literally murder Jesus? Maybe not. But I think what James is saying in a very, very explosive way, in-your-face way, is saying, If you live for this system of this world, it's like you are opposed to Jesus. Oh my goodness, brothers and sisters, woo! Right? And when it says, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter, there are people literally dying, and we're fattening our hearts. For what? When it pronounces all these condemnations, does it mean that God is going to judge these people? Maybe. There's some strong indications of that, by the way, for people who, you know, are not really uh, uh, the, the, the ones that God has called and the ones who are, are the ones that, that Jesus is able to recognize in the end, right? But brothers and sisters, I do know this too. That life that we live in this one life that we have, that's just a vapor. You know, if you are just living it for yourself, it's saying, it's like you're fattening your heart. Do you ever just eat and eat and eat and eat? You know, that thing, when you had it at first, it was so good. You know, you had one little taste of that candy. You're just like, mmm, candy is so good. I'm going to eat another piece of candy. This is the way wealth is for a lot of us. Is God saying wealth is bad? No. Right? He's saying that there are people who are crying out for their wages that have been denied them. Right? And so he's implying very strongly, he's saying you should pay them wages. Right? You should pay them money. We're not saying, hey, let's just get rid of money. Money's not important. Right? He's saying, you who are hoarding that money for yourself, that is wrong. To pay these people a living wage, that's important. You must do that. Of course, money's not bad in and of itself. It is the worship of money. 
the, 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 the love of money, as it says. That is what is evil. This system, this, this idolatry of it, this thinking that money will give you something that it cannot. Security. It cannot give you security. It cannot give you what only God can give you. And it cannot give you ultimate meaning. It's like this. Eating you know, your favorite snack, your favorite food, and you just keep eating it and eating it and eating it. And before you know it, you have a jamongous stomachache. I do this all the time. I get, open a bag of chips. I'm like, chips, so good. Before you know it, chips all gone. And Steve is just sick for the next five hours. What happened? A good thing spoiled. A good thing went rotten. We don't see that in this world. Especially for us who don't have that much money. We look at rich people. We look at their very well curated lives. This lie that has to be upheld in order to prop up capitalism. They must make you believe this lie. That that will make you happy and satisfied. And it will not. Do you ever have so much of anything in this life? Free time, money, food, any kind of pleasure. You get sick of it. I had friends that used to think, like, I'm just going to watch movies all day. That's going to be my life. So they go to the movies on a Saturday, and they would like do this thing where you pay for one movie, and then you just kind of slip out and just go into another movie that's already playing. I never did this personally. Honestly, I didn't. I probably would have if I had friends who did it. Uh, but it's, uh, they would do this, and then after a while, you know, you'd ask them, hey, was that fun? Did you have a good time, that movie marathon? They'd be like, no, man, I feel sick to my stomach. You know, only so much popcorn you can eat. Only so many movies you can consume. But brothers and sisters, there is one thing that I believe is eternal. I believe this is what Jesus means when he says, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth that will rot. They all rot. They all get rotten. They will rot your soul. Store up for yourself treasures in heaven, in the realm of God, in the kingdom of God. They will never go bad. They will never rot. That, brothers and sisters, I think is the one thing that never truly rots is the kingdom of God. It is something that is eternal. It is something that cannot be touched. We're going to talk a lot more about this throughout the year. But the kingdom of God does not just mean, it it does mean this, but it does not just mean the life that comes after you die. Right? How do we know this? Because we pray it all the time in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Right? It's not just after you die. It's supposed to be inbreaking more and more. The reversal of all the things that are wrong. The people who have been brought low, the poor, to be raised up. The people who are proud and inflated to be brought down. This is the kingdom of God, the restoration of all things. Brothers and sisters, you know, we were only in Mexico for four days, only two days on the home build. But like Connie said, there's so many people there who just felt, I mean, so tired and sore because uh, a lot of us had not done that much physical labor in a really long time. But to a person, everyone said, my heart is full. My heart is full. 
And what we were building there was not just one home. This is about the kingdom of God. I, I didn't quite get that, honestly, before I went. I kind of thought like, ah, yeah, we're going to build one house and it's going to teach us some lessons. It's going to be a good story. And, you know, we're going to learn to be generous people. Yeah, that, that's a part of it, brothers and sisters. Don't get me wrong. But Connie mentioned this, this idea of the rhythm of grace, that, that, that I, this image in this song that was playing during the video was, was something that I was reminded of. Because what we saw was uh, homes of hope, they don't just have one home of hope. They build an average of uh, five homes, I believe, every weekend. So you think 52 weeks a year, they build over 250 houses every year. And that's only on the weekends, right? So over the summer, you're building during the week too. So let's say you up that number to 300. And they've been doing this for what? Has it been like 30, 40 years, something like that? Do you do that for 40 years? You build 300 houses in the city of Tijuana. What do you think is going to happen? You get community impact. And we saw that. We were in a very, very poor neighborhood. I want to show you uh, just a, a few pictures of this neighborhood. So this is the, the neighborhood as we were driving in. The house is on the hill. This is a different neighborhood. It, it looks like the hill is very small, but it's actually huge. I mean, there's no way you could scale that. It's a completely different neighborhood. The house is over here on the bottom. Those are the houses that are in that neighborhood. Now, look at that house on the right, that blue house. You're going to get another look at it in another slide. Uh, I just took this picture from the van as we were driving in. The house is on the other side of that house that's on the left, the one we were building. That's why you can't see it. You can just kind of see the roof there. But do you see that house there, that blue house? That house is a home of hope. And um, so that was built by someone in Wyoming. And somewhere about 75% of the houses in this neighborhood were all built by homes of hope. When we were there, I, I don't understand the picture where we had all the boards laid out and we were painting, right? I mean, it was obnoxious. We just had the boards everywhere. They're in the streets, right? And some people, they like, were very patient with us, but they were like, hey, can you move the boards out of the street? Right? I need to get through. You know, and we're just a menace, right? We're just taking up all the space. And this guy comes over to me and he says in, in, in Spanish, he, he says this thing, and I don't really understand him, but he's saying it very nicely. But I thought what he was trying to say was, hey, you need to get these boards out of here. You're taking up space because that's what they would do in America, right? They'd be like, hey, that's not your property. Get out of the street, man. Go build your home of hope somewhere else. But this guy was like, hey, do you need more room? You can use my lot right over here. And what I didn't realize was that man, that he was living in that blue house, which was a home of hope. And that was built seven years ago. Right? Some, some people, we heard that the homes of hope, they last for about 15 to 20 years. And some of us were like, yeah, but we've never swung a hammer before. Is this house really going to last 15 to 20 years? And so many people were encouraged when they saw that blue house. They were like, seven years, it still, still looks good. you know. But it, it, there was also uh, uh, it, it, these, these kids who would come over. One of the kids lived in this house. And this kid was painting. you know, They were doing all this stuff. And then during lunch, uh, some of us were sitting in the sun. He's like, hey, you want to come over and sit in the shade? And so me and, and a couple of the builders, we went over and we're talking to the man who offered the lot space. And he was like, our home was built seven years ago by Homes of Hope. Whenever a, a home gets built in this community, and it's a lot of them, all of us, we help. We all help. 
Can we go to the next picture? So this is the, that circle that, that Connie was talking about where we're passing around the keys. And actually one of the staff members there um, is speaking, the, the one in the blue. But if you see the people, uh, uh, the, the woman on her right and the people to her left, those are not family members. Those are just community members. Those are just people who live there. And they're there and they also held on to the keys and they also blessed that family. They came in with us, and we held hands together, and we prayed for this house. The rhythm of grace, like a flow. You think it's such a small thing. We think that the things we do for the kingdom of God have to do these big things. Some of us, we even justify. Hey, you know, I'm going to be greedy for the kingdom, right? But God can use these little seeds. This is the kingdom. And so, uh, oh, by the way, the people on the right there, uh, this guy uh, who's got like the, the shirt wrapped around his head, that guy, his name is Maka, and he actually plays for the U.S. national rugby team. And I guess a few months ago, his whole rugby team came to build a house. And so Maka just one weekend just decided that he and his wife just wanted to come and build another house. And so he called up, and he said, hey, can we just join a team? And I'm kind of kidding, but our team was very small. Most of the teams are like 15 to 20. We had 10. And um, uh, none of us, like most of us had never swung a hammer before. And the way I thought this went was that they're like, yeah, yeah, you come down. We have just a team for you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> This huge 6-1 rugby player. Oh, man, blessing from God. But this guy got in that rhythm of grace too. You know, maybe, you know, his rugby team, like, oh, yeah, let's, let's just take a photo op or whatever. But he's like, no, man, I want to go back. I want to go build another house. Next picture, last picture. This is the least impressive picture. But this, this one is the most amazing to me. This is the mission base. Uh, we were kind of embarrassed to show you guys pictures of the mission base because it looked like a resort. It was so beautiful. And we're, we're like, we got there, and that stumbled us more than anything. We showed up. I was like, I was ready for everything except for this, how nice it was. And you guys saw us at the beach. Uh, this is in one of the rooms, and this is Millie. And Millie was our host. Millie has been working for uh, Homes of Hope for the last few years. And Millie's husband is a Mexican national. And Millie's husband grew up in a home of hope when he was a kid. And Millie's husband was actually the one who screened the family that we built the house for. We didn't get to meet Millie's husband. Otherwise, I would have shown Millie's husband. (laughs) But brothers and sisters, the rhythm of grace. It's just this incredible, not just a feeling, but this knowing. What God is doing is not just about building homes. I mean, there's a reason why they call it a home of hope, the restoration of hope. To see the kingdom and what it can be, that, brothers and sisters, is a life worth living for. I know some people, we we do our little mission projects once a year to make ourselves feel better so we can do whatever the heck we want for the rest of the year. Maybe cynically, that's what we think we're doing in the church. But I want to propose, and I want to put it out there. Can it be something different? I've been thinking and just praying about what is going to be the impact on LGA. I don't mean some legalistic thing. But how are we going to actually live for the kingdom? Because that's what matters. We can come here every week, sing nice songs, you know, talk about Jesus. And don't get me wrong, all those things are wonderful. It's wonderful. 
But I know for a lot of us, there is something we are feeling called to. Right? This is a wonderful thing about God. Right? In Jesus, you are adopted into God's family. Unconditional love. Isn't that a great thing? This is a part of being a part of a family, especially in biblical times. When you are a part of the family, adopted or not, you are part of the family business. And so, yes, you get unconditional love. You get that status of being a child of God. But now, brothers and sisters, we get to work for the family business. And the family business is the kingdom of God. The family business is the restoration of all things, all the broken things, to bind up the poor and the hurting, to see the world reflect the way that God wants to rule and reign forever, forever, brothers and sisters. So I just want to end with this question. How should we spend this one life? That may be too abstract for you. So I want you to ask, ask God. I mean, remember that whole humility thing. Sometimes we make the plans and we think those plans are so awesome. Oh, I'm going to do this and this. I'm going to build all these houses. Maybe that's not what God wants you to do, right? That's part of the humility. So why don't we ask him and be open to that? How do you want me to spend this one day? How do you want me to spend this one week? How do you want me to spend this one month? Because on its own, and this is how I began the message, brothers and sisters. I told you, this is going to kind of depress you, right? This is what your life is without Christ. But in the kingdom of God is eternal. It goes on forever. The impact goes on forever. It is the thing most worth living for. Can we ask the praise team to come up? And why don't we just kind of pray about that? I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, as we talk about the kingdom, it is a different system. It is not what we have been living in. This is why I think silence is so important. Being still in the presence of God is so important. Because if we let the normal thoughts, the normal way we hear the messages of this world, you're just going to live in the rhythm of this world, which is all about accumulating stuff. It's all about trying to be our own gods and get our own security, right? And so, brothers and sisters, let's just take a moment to just be still in the presence of God. God, can you tell us different? Can you tell me and show me what is worth living for? How should I spend this one life that you have given me? Precious God, we are so grateful to have this moment to pause from what we normally do in life. Not just pause to sing songs, not just pause to hear a word that will just go in one ear and out the other. But that we get a glimpse of your kingdom, of your kingdom reality, of what really lasts. In this world, there's so much glittering stuff, so much stuff that sparkles. It catches the eye. It's so seductive, but it does not last. Not the way your kingdom lasts. 
not the way the things that you are building will endure when they are blessed by you, when they are according to your will. God, will you come and rule and reign in our lives, in our plans? And we want to humble ourselves. We want to come take up our crosses again and to die to our own plans, our own ideas of how this life might go. Maybe things won't change radically today, but maybe just in one little thing today, we will be obedient to live for your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.